Blog Talk Radio. forgotten airline as we do in the next few episodes last week the airline radio hour presented episode 54 transworld airlines are better known as twa great guest history and memories of former twa employees and today's show features the great flag carrier pan american world airways better known as pan am my name is Neil Holland, a retired captain with Eastern Airlines and producer of the show. And we would like to call, if you'd like to call in and talk with our guest host or to add your comments, you can simply dial 213-816-1611. Again, that's area code 213-816-1611. The producer will see your number on the caller's board and open your microphone, which is your phone, uh, to bring you into the conversation. Now, let me repeat the number again. It's 213-816-1611. We're a satellite-based radio show, and we're carried around the world, over 50 countries around the world listening regularly. And if we've been doing this uh, for 11 years, it must be something we're doing right because people are interested in tuning us in places like China and, and uh, uh, other countries around the world. It'd be great to start a series of little-known facts about airlines gone but not forgotten uh, was the idea so that we could present it to our world listeners as well as those uh, here uh, in the U.S. that listen to us regularly. Hosting today's shows are Captain Jim Holder, Margaret Bars, Luann Wiggins, Captain Jim Harris, and of course your producer, Captain Neil Holland. We're happy to have guests Linda Freer, Freer, and John Lutich, and which we'll speak with during our show a little bit later on. 
Now let's hear one of those great Pan American commercials that you've heard in the past. A brand new world, it's just outside your door. Say hello to a brand new dream, much closer than before. All the world is waiting for you. There's a change across the land. Say hello to a brand new world. Say hello to Panham. Just say hello. To brand new friends, to places far and wide, to all those people who can fly the world the way they want to fly. Say hello to hopes and plans. like uh, Pan American and some of the other carriers had great commercials, TV commercials. I miss a, a lot of those old-time commercials. And we've got a few to play before the show ends today. Captain Holder, I think uh, you want to you ask Margaret uh, a question. It's all yours, Captain Holder. I sure do. Luann, listen, Margaret dropped a little unknown secret about you, and I, I just wonder if it's true. I really well, what was it that little Miss Margaret told you? You know, she's supposed to be tattletaling. I'm going to get her for this one. Well, I've got Jim Harris here, and I failed to open his microphone. And, Jim, would you repeat what you were going to ask Luann? Jim? I didn't have a question for her. I just know she's from Hazard, Kentucky. <laughs> well, I want to ask the question for you, Luann. Uh, she told me the same little secret. I can't wait for you to talk about this one. Go ahead, Luann. Well, just great. So she told you too, Captain Harris. 
You know, I'm about to get vexed over this, so somebody better fess up. Now, calm down. Come on, calm down, Luann. She just said that you wouldn't mind sharing this secret with us since we're talking about Pan American Airways today on the show. Yep, she did. I'll back up, Captain, hold on that one. And I'm pretty sure she told Captain Neal, which that's him talking. I heard him laughing in his office after she left. Luann? Well, Captain Holder, are you going to dilly-dally all day, or are you going to go ahead and tell me what that secret is? All righty, all righty. Here it is. She said, she said that you once applied for a theater job with Pan American before you got on with that airline up there. What's it, KY Up Air? I still can't pronounce that name and say it. Now, is that really true? Did you do that? Well, I ain't going to lie in front of all these people around the world. So, yes, I did. And it was my first rejection letter ever. It still pains me, but I'm I'm still working through it. But here's what happened, or as my granny used to say, here's the rest of the tale. Now, I was watching TV one night back in my younger days, and this here Pan Am advertisement came on, and it said, get into this world as a Pan Am stewardess. And, oh, how I wanted to get in that world of London and Paris and wear them pretty blue suits and the hats. So I just had to apply. But you know, Captain Holder, that application process turned out to be a nightmare because of all them questions they ask you. Heck, fire didn't understand half of them, but they sure was up in your business on that application. Uh, Now, let me see. On that application, as I recall, it had the word sex with a little tiny box next to it. Now, today, the apps say gender, but not in them days. So I was really confused by that. So I just drew my own little box and wrote, see my comment below. And here was my comment. Dear Pan Am, this is a subject that we don't really talk about where I come from. So I didn't have no places on this till I went to a great Kentucky Christian college. And as freshmen, it's mandatory. We watch this here movie, listen to a medical doctor try to explain it all to us. But, you know, I was tired that day, and I slept through the whole darn thing, and I failed that written test. So I called my mama, and I asked her, Mama, what was in that movie? And she said, you know, we don't talk about this, so call your Granny Dory. So I did. And this was the sage advice she gave me. She made it real simple. She said, Luann, when you come home next weekend, I'm going to give you a dime. And I said, why, Granny? And she said, because when you're out on a date, I want you to put that dime between your knees. You squeeze real tight, and you never, ever (laughs) give change. (laughs) Oh, she was a real smart woman, and that made it all clear to me, I have to say. Uh, Now, there's another question, and I could answer that one. I understood that one. It said, do you speak a second language? And I replied, I certainly did, and I was fluent in both English and Appalachian Hillbilly. So I wrote in my comment section, well, I bet you most of your Pan Am securities can't match that talent. 
And my Appalachian hillbilly might come in right handy if you have an unruly passenger or if someone tries to take over the plane. Because there ain't no way in purgatory they'd understand them Appalachian, Appalachian hillbilly words being flung at them. And in their confusion, I just take them down with a karate chop or a kick since I do have a black belt in Rue karate. Now, I ain't comparing myself to the code talkers of World War II, but I'm just a saying, it's a little similar, don't you think? <laughs> now, the last question, um, they asked me, do you have four-year degrees? And if so, what was your major? And I proudly answered, husbandry. <laughs> now, in the comment section... <laughs> I wrote, I probably should explain this a little. You see, when I declared that as my major, I thought the classes were on how to find and cultivate husbands. Boy, oh boy, was I shocked to learn in them classes that husbandry meant, now this is according to the Oxford Dictionary, the care and the cultivation of crops and the breeding of domestic animals. It also meant the control and management of domestic animals. So I thought on that for a while. And, you know, it didn't get exciting in, that, in those classes until my senior year. Now, one of them professors started talking about a method to control livestock, like sheep and goats and little pigs. He said it was the use of something called an elastrator. He further explained that's a little rubber band used on domestic animals to, now how can I say this delicately, uh, make their little private parts fall off. He said it didn't hurt much. So I made me a big old note about that one for future references. This could possibly be used to control a domestic husband. Now, if you think about it, and you know today, Captain Neal, I still carry an illustrator in my purse. <laughs> you never know when that might come in handy. You well, <laughs> well, back to my story. It weren't long before Pan Am sent me that rejection letter, but they was real nice about it. They said they felt I was overqualified for the airline, but I should definitely, absolutely apply to all their competitors since it'd only be fair to subject them to all my talents. And besides and besides that, I couldn't have accepted their offer anyway. Captain Neal, you know my boyfriend Luther. He he said it was either the world or him, so unfortunately I chose him. But and on a good note, I did achieve my wish to be a bona fide stewardess up in, you know, we Kentucky up there. And somebody sent them a copy of my letter from Pan Am. They hired me on the spot. They said I was just the kind of girl they were looking for. And that's the truth about that deal. <laughs> Pan American, world's most experienced airline. Hawaii's golden beaches and beautiful music are as close as tomorrow. Tomorrow, you can be in Waikiki, less than a day away by Pan American. Fly first class or tourist on Pan Am's radar-equipped Super 7 Clippers. 
or first class overnight on Pan Am's luxurious double-deck Superstrata Clippers with berths and bed-length sleeperette reclining seats. Hawaii is a perfect spot for your next two-week vacation and so easy to get to when you go Pan American, the world's most experienced airline. This fall, the fastest way from here to there is on Pan American's new non-stop services. Overnight to London, Paris, Rome, Frankfurt, and Lisbon. Of course, you'd like to take the family, too. But think you can't afford it? Think again. Because from now through March, you and your family can fly to Europe at tremendous savings on Pan American's new low-fare family plan. Couple these economical family fares with Pan Am's new non-stop services from New York, and you have a travel bargain unique in history. Even deep in the USA, there's hardly a major city that doesn't now have one-stop service to the major capitals of Europe. Across the Atlantic, you can fly giant Douglas-built, radar-equipped Super 7 Clippers, the world's fastest, quietest over-ocean airliners. Enjoy famous Pan-American Clipper comfort. Delicious, nourishing meals en route. Yet, you alone pay the full fare. Your wife and children, 12 to 26, can travel for round-trip savings up to $300 apiece. Children under 12 always go for half fare. And travel on this money-saving family plan can be arranged on Pan Am's worldwide plan. Go now, pay later. For example, a family of four can fly tourists nonstop to London and return for a down payment of just $149. Can fly nonstop tourists round trip to Paris for only $164 down. Or fly nonstop to Rome. Round trip tourist tickets for four cost only $199.60 down. And you have up to 20 months to pay the balance. This is the best time to get to know Europe wherever you go. And Pan American flies to all of 28 cities there. Remember, for business and for pleasure that will stay with you always, ask for the fastest non-stop services to Europe. See your travel agent or call Pan American, world's most experienced airline. And Margaret, I really like the idea of a down payment on airfares. They ought to put that right into uh, practice now. Uh, I think that would be a great idea. Um, so uh, let me just talk for a moment about Pan American. So Pan American World Airways is known as a symbol of the historic days of aviation. While the airline was the largest international carrier in the United States until its demise in 1991, it was the founding member of the IATA, the International Air Transport Association. At its peak, the airline also set two around-the-world records, both using the B-747. The airline was fairly old when it ceased operations due to bankruptcy. Founded in 1927, the airline would actually be 95 had it survived to the present day. But instead, it ceased operations in 1991 at 64 years old. The Pan Am name lives on, however, and has now been adopted by a private rail transport company. Pan Am was originally incorporated as Pan American Airlines rather, on the 14th of March, 1927. 
the airline was founded as a shell company, meaning it had no assets or employees, just a name and a bank account. Having raised $250,000 in startup capital, the airline commenced operations on the 19th of October that same year with the Fairchild FC2 float plane. Pan Am went on to increase its network by accepting new government airmail contracts. And in the 1930s, the airline began offering passenger flights further afield with newer float planes known as Clippers. In 1937, Pan Am secured contracts to commence transatlantic flights. So, Captain Holder, would you please take it from here? Sure, Margaret. Let's fast forward about 20 years and Pan Am starts to operate jet aircraft. This marked the start of a close relationship with the U.S. manufacturing company, Boeing. In fact, in 1955, Pan Am placed an order for 20 Boeing 707s, becoming the aircraft's launch customer. In 1958, Pan Am began operating flights from New York to Paris with a refueling stop in Canada. And that surprises me. I thought the, the 707 could go over there unstopped. Anyhow, in 1966, 11 years after their first Boeing 707 order, Pan Am became the launch customer for the Boeing 747. The airline placed an order worth $525 million. Now, that's approximately $4 million in today's money for those aircraft. The order was actually finalized during the fishing trip that the CEOs of Boeing and Pan Am took. You see, at the time of the purchase, Bill Allen was the president of Boeing, and Juan Tripp was the chief executive officer of Pan Am. They were longtime friends, and they sealed the deal on selling the airplanes to Pan Am with a handshake on the fishing trip. And I wonder if they caught any fish on the trip. Now, how about it, Captain Harris, if you're around, was a success for Pan Am having back in the 60s is going to continue. Well, uh, apparently Jim didn't get his uh, part here, but uh, despite a number of highly successful years throughout the 1970s, the airline eventually had had to come to an end. And Pan Am, having, having once called itself the world's most experienced airline, eventually filed for bankruptcy protection in January of 1991. Due to high rising fuel costs as well as an inability to operate domestic routes, the airline was starting to run at a loss. The airline also suffered from several public relations hits in 1988. This was a year that saw a Pan Am Boeing 747 crash in Lockerbie, sparking a $300 million lawsuit as well as an additional fine from the FAA for 19 security failings. Delta claimed that Pan Am was losing around $3 million per day of operation in the latter months of 1991, requiring $25 million just to keep flying for another week. Pan Am was able to convince a bankruptcy judge that they were close to making a deal regarding continuing operations with TWA and on the 3rd uh, of December. As such, the airline opened for business as usual. On the 4th of December, however, was shut down within an hour. 
around 7,500 employees instantly lost their jobs. The last commercial Pan Am flight operated between Bridgetown and Barbados using a Boeing 727 aircraft. Although several airlines have tried to revive the Pan Am brand over the years, ultimately none have been successful. And today's Pan Am's legacy lives on as one of the largest names in aviation history. We'd like to share a few firsts with this great name in commercial aviation. 1927, it was the first U.S. airline to operate permanent international air service, Key West, Florida to Havana, Cuba, and the first U.S. airline to operate land aircraft over water on a regular schedule. 1928, 
Pan Am was the first U.S. airline to develop an airport and an airways traffic control system. It was the first U.S. airline to carry emergency life-saving equipment and the first U.S. airline to order and purchase aircraft built to its own specifications with the Sikorsky S-38 flying boat. 1930, the first U.S. airline to offer international air express service. 1931, the first U.S. airline to develop and operate four-engine flying boats. Pan Am's first clippers is Sikorsky S-40 fleet. 1932, first airline to sell all expense international air tour packages. 1935, first airline to develop and employ long-range weather forecasting, and the first airline to operate scheduled Trans-Pacific passenger and mail service. 1939, first airline with scheduled transatlantic mail and passenger services. 1941 through 1942, first airline to complete a round-the-world flight first airline to fly internationally with all cargo aircraft. Yes, and Margaret, I might add that six days, six days from its home port of San Francisco, a luxurious Boeing 314 flying boat named the Pacific Clipper was faring to alight. I guess that's what you do over water. You don't land, you alight in Auckland, Mm -hmm. New Zealand, as part of the airline's Trans-Pacific 10 learned of the Japanese attack on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor Harbor, on the morning of December the 7th, 1941. That's right, Jim. And Pan American uh, Captain Robert Ford was faced with a dilemma. After a week in the U.S. Embassy, Ford finally received word from Pan Am headquarters that they were to return to the U.S. by flying westward. Now, they were on their way, or on their own, I should say, for gasoline and supplies and had to fly over land and water, with which none of the crew was familiar. And Margaret, Captain Ford, took off on December 16th, unsure of his fate, backtracked to Nomea, New Caledonia, to pick up the Pan Am staff left there and headed west for Australia. Hours later, they put down in Gladstone, north of Brisbane, on the Coral Sea. The next day, Captain Ford and the Pacific Clipper headed northwest to Darwin, flying over the Queensland desert and watching it gradually transform into tropical rainforest near their destination of Darwin. The next goal was Surabaya in the Dutch East Indies, present-day Indonesia keeping their fingers crossed that the Japanese expansion had not reached this far the crew of the massive flying boat flew 2253 kilometers which was about 1400 miles over open ocean and reached the city but not before they were intercepted by suspicious british fighter aircraft and escorted into safety after taxiing through mine waters neil after refueling with automobile-grade gasoline, since no 100-octane fuel was available, the Pacific Clip- Clipper carefully took off and headed for Ceylon. This is now Sri Lanka. They didn't have any charts, only the coordinates of their destination. And with remarkable precision, navigator Roderick Brown 
he found the island and the port city where they again alighted safely, although only after avoiding patrolling Japanese submarines. Refueling once again, the Boeing 314 left Tri-Kamali on Christmas Eve only to turn back after losing an engine. Repairs took all day on Christmas and before they retook to the air on Boxing Day bound for Karachi, India, now Pakistan. After an uneventful flight, Captain Ford continued safely on to Bahrain and then across the vast desert expanse of the Arabian Peninsula to Khartoum, Sudan, where they alighted on the Nile. Not wishing to risk any further desert flying, the crew of the Pacific Clipper pressed on to Leopoldville in the Belgian Congo, now known as Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Sorry about that name if I didn't get it right. And they were able to put the huge flying boat down on the Congo River when they reached their designation. And Margaret. And now to finish this fascinating story. To avoid flying across the Pacific under the attack or after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Pacific Clipper flew westward, three-fourths of the way around the world to New York. Fighting oppressive heat and the strong current of the river, the flying boat once again clawed into the sky, becoming airborne before reaching a set of waterfalls. Safely clear of the obstacles, the Pacific Clipper droned 5,766 kilometers, equating to 3,583 miles, westward to Natal, Brazil, then up the coast to Port of Spain, Trinidad, and finally on January 6, 1942, to the Marine Terminal at LaGuardia, Long Island, New York. Total flight time, 209 hours covering 31,500 miles. It was the first around-the-world flight by a commercial airliner the hard way. Now, after this historic flight, the Pacific Clipper was assigned to the U.S. Navy for the rest of World War II. When the war ended, the aircraft was sold to Universal Airlines, who salvaged it after it was damaged in a storm. 1947, back to our first. Pan Am was the first airline to operate a scheduled round-the-world service. 1948, first airline to provide coach class service outside the continental U.S. 1949, Pan Am is the launch customer for Boeing's long-range 377 Strata Cruiser. 1958, now we're in the jet age, and Pan Am's, Pan Am's rather, Boeing 707 Clipper America flies the first scheduled transatlantic service of a U.S.-built jet. 1962, now here are a couple of non-flight-related firsts. Uh, Pan Am was the first airline to develop a global computer reservation system known as Panamax. And in 1964, they were the first airline to relay in-flight messages via satellite. 1967. Oh, this might be interest or be of interest to our pilot host. Pan Am was the first airline to make a fully automatic approach and landing in scheduled service. And in 1970, the first airline to fly the Boeing 747 wide-body jet in scheduled service. In 1978, one of the first airlines to introduce, introduce rather, 
a new class of service for business and full fare economy passengers called Pan Am's Clipper Class. Wow, Margaret. I thought my airline, Eastern, was known as the airline of first, but uh, I see Pan Am sure uh, sure was leading the pack there. The first airline to complete an around-the-world flight, that was most interesting. I see we have some callers with us today, and, and, um, and we're going to let them finish our show today and tell us uh, about what they're doing. And I want to, first of all, introduce our host, Linda Freire. Uh, she's the chairperson for the Pan American Museum Foundation. Uh, first of all, let me pause here and open your microphones, guys, so you can talk freely. And uh, right. uh, as I say, it was the Pan American Museum Foundation. And Linda was a former flight attendant with Pan Am. And along with Linda, we have uh, uh, we have John Lutich, I believe it is. Correct me if I pronounce names wrong, and uh, correct uh, correct me uh, with the Pan American. He's with the Pan American Museum Foundation also. Welcome to both of you. Don't know who wants to start. Linda, I'll start with you if you can introduce uh, your uh, your uh, your cohort there and tell us a little bit about sure. uh, some of the things that uh, we failed to mention or uh, it was not correctly uh, uh, told in our story today. Go ahead, Linda. Great. Thank you so much, Neil, for having John and I on your program today. We're delighted to be here. Um, first of all, yes, I was a Pan Am flight attendant, and um, I worked for the airline um, until the very last, until the very end, uh, unfortunately, and then continued my career with Delta Airlines. Uh, but, you know, Pan Am's always in my heart, and um, as those of us, um, and John can attest to this as another Pan Am employee as well, that, you know, we had a saying that we bleed blue, and that's Pan Am blue. So um, it remained with us ever so much, even though the airline closed in 1991, uh, that by 2015, a group of us former flight attendants were feeling that there had to be uh, a commemoration, a, a physical presence, a permanent museum to tell the story and the legacy of Pan Am. Uh, and as you related in your great overview of some of the historical firsts of Pan Am, it really did set the foundation for a lot of commercial aviation that is still flown today. Um, and, and, you know, it, that also would include Charles Lindbergh, who was a Pan Am pilot, uh, a consultant, I should say, and who, along with Juan Tripp, founder and CEO of Pan Am, helped um, chart the international routes, which are still used today for international airlines. Um, so we, a group of us, like I said, after um, knowing that there was not going to be a Pan Am anymore, um, in 2015 decided to do something about it, and we, did, we formed and founded a non-for-profit 501c3 organization called the Pan Am Museum Foundation. And we have a museum located in Garden City, Long Island, and we build exhibits, and John, as our curator and historian, is instrumental in helping us design and develop uh, those exhibits. One in particular, which was a, um, a labor of love and took John perhaps about two years in development because it is a timeline of Pan Am history from 1927 to 1991 that is uh, depicted 
on a 22-foot-long wall. I believe the wall is about 11 foot high. John, you can correct me any time if I'm incorrect on my dimensions there. But um, and it has all the pivotal events in Pan Am history. Uh, it, it, it's a work of art. It is a beautiful uh, rendering of uh, a pictorial rending, if you will, of the many historic moments in Pan Am history. Um, but um, just to clarify a couple of things, um, the railroad that did carry the name Pan Am was owned by a company called Pan Am Brands, and they purchased the rights to the, the logo, the Pan Am logo, the very iconic logo, and to the name um, following the bankruptcy of Pan Am and liquidation in 1991. Uh, but they sold the, air, the railroad, I should say, last year. So there is no longer a railroad that carries the name. And um, I'm going to let uh, John kind of address some of the things related to uh, Captain Ford's flight. Um, interesting, we do have a small uh, a display. We have an exhibit on Captain Ford's famous round-the-world by accident flight. Um, uh, one thing that we do depict in the uh, display in the exhibit is the fact that at the time, prior to the uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor, Pan uh, Am pilots and were carrying secret mission instructions. And in fact, Captain Ford had two envelopes, envelope A and envelope B. And when Pearl Harbor was bombed, they received a message. The navigator received a message instructing him to open one of the two envelopes. And he opened the envelope, and in the envelope were instructions that war has broken out and that you must proceed um, to Auckland. And that there they went and then spent a week kind of studying maps and trying to figure out the best way for them to fly westward back home. Um, so I'm going to let John kind of do a little introduction of his background and a little bit about what he's doing since joining the Pan Am Museum. And then he can tell you a little bit more about uh, Captain Ford's very historic, trying and difficult flight. Um, because I do think it is actually kind of funny, but when the plane finally came into um, radar and on the radar screen to, to land in LaGuardia after, cover, after flying 31,500 miles, um, the operator was actually just coming on duty. It was very early in the morning. And the airport wasn't officially open. It wasn't a 24-hour day operation back in those days. And um, the radio operator the t in the tower, I should say, um, asked them to identify themselves because there were no aircraft due in at that time of the morning. And Captain Ford announced who he was, and, and the, uh, the man in the, in the um, tower said, inbound from what Pan, Amer what Pan American flight coming? Inbound from where? And, of course, he said, inbound from Auckland. So the, the man in the tower was a little bit um, uh, perplexed by an aircraft coming into LaGuardia Airport from Auckland and, and asked them to, to circle for a while. Uh, after flying 31,500 miles and over 30 days, they had to circle for a while. And Captain Ford, being the very cool, collected individual that he was, that of course, and because the radio the tower man had to then verify that um, there could actually be a Pan Am plane inbound from Auckland, and the rest, as they say, is history. But um, let me turn it over to John for a few minutes to talk a little bit about um, his participation and work with the museum. John. Yeah. Hi. 
Hi, Neil. Thank you for having me. I'm a mm-hmm. late invitation uh, just this morning, but I'm glad to be here. Um, I've been with Linda and the museum for about three years now. I've been associated with the, there is also the Pan Am Historical Foundation, which I've been a member of for over 20 years. And I work for Pan Am. Uh, I told you my story. I, I grew up with Pan Am. My mother was an executive secretary um, for 40 years, starting in 1943. So I grew up with the company, and we would go on vacations. Uh, I flew to Europe a couple of times on, on DC-7s, and I, I've flown all kinds of aircraft. Um, but, um, yeah, so anyway, uh, we have the museum in Garden City, Long Island, and uh, we are uh, keeping the Pan Am uh, legacy alive, and uh, I'm glad to be here. Um, l- let me say that, uh, you know, our, our uh, relationship with Eastern Airlines, uh, we both had hubs in Miami and New York. I, mm-hmm. I know that. I'm sure that Eddie Rickenbacker was a good friend of Von Tripp's. Uh, I know that Eastern leased two of Pan Am's first 747s for a couple of years, I, th- I think, as soon as they came out, maybe 1970 or 1971. But um, anyway, so that's part of the relationship. And I'm sure our terminal at JFK was right across from yours. Uh, it was an easy walk. I, I've done that. <laughs> it's like... Uh, what else can I tell you? Um, yeah, uh, Captain Ford's flight. Uh, Pan Am was already involved in the war, um, shuttling between South America and Africa. One trip had set up uh, a subsidiary company to help to help the Allies uh, uh, beat. Rommel, and they were ferrying fighters across the ocean at the shortest distance, which was Natal in Brazil and and, uh, Ghana, I think, in Africa. And that was under the the, the guise of the Lend-Lease program that FDR had started before we actually got into war at Pearl Harbor. Lend-Lease started, I think, either at the end of 1940 or the beginning of 1941. But uh, Linda covered pretty much uh, the essentials of uh, his flight. Um, Yeah, I I think he had to circle over LaGuardia to wait for daylight before he landed. But uh, other than that, Mm. it was a remarkable trip. Yeah, and and just a few things. Um, All Pan Am aircraft were, after a certain date, were named Clippers. Um, and probably the most historic one um, was Clipper One Trip, which is the Pan Am 747. It was the second off of the line, the assembly, Boeing's assembly line, and, of course, uh, dedicated in the name of one Terry Tripp, who um, initially brought the idea of having a jumbo jet uh, to Bill Allen. And there's a famous story um, that they, when they were on the fishing trip to which you alluded to, uh, that the two men were talking and about this jumbo jet, and uh, they both realized the significance of development of this type of incredible groundbreaking aircraft, uh, not only in size but investment, and that it could p- potentially bankrupt, and Bill Allen knew that it could potentially bankrupt Boeing 
because of the money they would have to invest in development of the aircraft. And he basically said to uh, to Juan Tripp, you know, um, we'll build it if you buy it. And Tripp was reported to have said back, we'll buy it if you build it. And there then came the handshake <laughs> on the fishing trip. Mm. And that mm. and that was how the deal of the for at that time the largest purchase of, of uh, aircraft in aviation history at that time. And of course. We all know that the 747 went on to become perhaps craft in aviation history, you know, yeah. having flown for 50 years um, all over the world. And for me personally, having been a Pan Am flight attendant, the aircraft, the 747 was my home. That was my home away from home. And, you know, it, ha- it has an endearing nickname called Queen of the Skies. And it was the queen because it was a sense of comfort on that airplane. It was so big. It was so massive. When you walked on board, you really did feel um, like you could make it your home. Um, wherever I traveled in the world, it could have been the most remote location, um, and I pretty much flew all over the world. I used to call my job, or Pan Am, was my magic carpet ride around the world. Um, you know, sailing, you know, going down the Nile and staying Cairo, visiting the pyramids, going to the Taj Mahal in, in, in India. Um, kinds of things that maybe you read about in books, but you don't always have an opportunity to do. Pan Am afforded me and many others like me um, those kinds of incredible opportunities, going on safari in, in Africa um, and to little-known places that you know you may not even find on a map. But that was where Pan Am was flying. I can remember being on a trip in northern Africa, and I'm I'm backpacking through Northern Africa, which you could do in those days um, with, with a few friends. And there was civilization where we stopped to get something to drink. And there were two signs on this little kind of wood hut. One said Coca-Cola and the other said Pan American. <laughs> and here I'm in the middle of nowhere and there's a Pan American. I'm like, is there a travel agent in there? <laughs> But it was, you know, it was the second most recognized logo and name brand in the world, you know, after Coca-Cola. So, and th- and there was a reason for it because it really had developed a route system and destinations that took um, people, Americans in particular, but took people from all over the world to any place in the world that they wanted to go. Uh, Juan Tripp's vision was to make the world a little smaller. And that's pretty much what he sought to do with expanding and building the airline, uh, going into many different destinations, and developing aircraft that became more affordable for the average American traveler. Um, And that uh, I was privileged to go on many special inaugural flights. Um, I participated in um, 1988 uh, after President Reagan had lifted the embargo on flying into what was then the Soviet Union. I was on the inaugural flight 747, which was a nonstop flight, and it was a partnership with Aeroflot at the time from New York to Moscow. And, of course, there was a whole bunch of media on our arrival in, um, in Moscow, and we spent several days there um, walking all around and being accompanied by some um, Soviet um, ambassadors who were taking us around. But all the while, we knew that we were being followed everywhere by the KGB. So it, it, was, it was an interesting 
um, experience. I, I still remember it to this day and have so many fond memories of the days that I had flying with Pan Am. Um, and you referenced, you know, the end of the company, which for all of us who were there towards the end, and anyone who had a sense of um, emotion and connection, like I said, for Pan Amers, we say we bleed blue. And there's the slogan for us is always gone but not forgotten. It's forever in our hearts. Uh, you know, the the end of the airline was a traumatic experience. It was an emotional, it was a death. And we remembered, um, you know, Lockerbie, unfortunately, was not really just, it wasn't a crash. It, it, it was a terrorist bomb planted on board the aircraft that really um, destroyed the airline, um, even though it had started to make in late, in or mid to late 88, it started to make a little bit of a financial rebound, but unfortunately the bombing of Pan Am 103 pretty much uh, made it financially impossible for Pan Am to continue because as the airline that was considered the flag carrier of the United States, it became a target and, um, and there really wasn't um, a lot of, there weren't a lot of people flying Pan Am anymore internationally. Uh, they would not book on our airline in that, and the planes were going out pretty much empty, which was difficult to see because Pan Am had had such a storied history, not only from all the first, but from um, the heyday and the buildup and the excitement of, you know, entering the jet age in 1958 and then launching of the 747 in 1970, that um, knowing all of that um, was ceasing was almost inconceivable to so many. Um, and still looking back, it, it has um, taken on a vestige of even people who tried to recreate the airline knows that it was, it was a moment in time. And unfortunately, that, that moment couldn't continue. Yeah. Well, uh, let's play one of the great uh, Pan Am 747 commercials, see if you remember this one. Oh, would love to, yes, sir. Chances are you've heard about the plane with a spiral staircase in first class. The plane with the two wide aisles and the three widescreen movies and the eight-foot ceilings and economy. And chances are you've wondered, who's going to get this incredible bird off the ground? Now you know. Pan Am will bring you the world's first 747. Pan Am will bring you the plane with all the room in the world before you know it. Sure, appreciate Linda, you and John being with us today, and and uh, thank you, and come back often if you can, and uh, contribute anytime you you feel necessary. Jim Holder, I think you were going to tell us uh, of additional information that you found out about that flight. Uh, can you tell us about uh, uh, Captain Ford? Uh, yeah, yeah, Mel, I'd be glad to. Uh, there's a couple of observations. Captain Ford did not fly the Clipper around the world, you know, that they talk about doing that. He flew her from Honolulu 
around the world back to New York. And uh, both Ford and the airplane went almost around the world. Uh, did yep. A Pan Am 314 did fly around the world in 1944, though, piloted by Captain Bill Maslin. It was a uh, aircraft was an Anzac Clipper. I'm not exactly sure what kind of airplane that is, but it had, probably had to carry a lot of fuel and go a long way. The pair of passengers were on board Ford flight as far as Uckland, but Ed Dover's book, that broke the long the long way home has been in print since ninety nine, been advised revised several times with new information, and I heard heartily commended. He wasn't Dover wasn't a member of the crew. The book is called The Long Way Home, published in two hundred and ten, two thousand and ten. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you want to add to that? Older. Yeah, add to that, Linda. Anything? Uh, no, no. Ed Dover, I actually I know pretty well, and um, he he did an interview with with Bob Ford, um, as well as one of our other board members, um, Captain John Marshall, who actually flew the last Pan Am flight, which was a 747. It was a, a non-scheduled flight after the airline had already shut down. But they both spoke to Bob Ford, Captain Ford, personally, and interviewed him. And we're lucky at the museum to have an actual recording of that interview. Uh, is the museum in one separate building, Linda, or do you share facilities with uh, uh, another uh, tenant there, or, or is it uh, complete yes, Pan Am? We are um, we are a museum within a museum. Um, we rent space from an aviation museum on Long Island called the Cradle of Aviation Museum, and the Cradle of Aviation Museum is located in um, the on the location on the very site where Charles Lindbergh took off on the spirit of St. Louis for his historic solo flight across the Atlantic to Paris. Okay. And can you share the website if someone wants to go to the website? And do you have a place that uh, people can make donations to your foundation? Yes. Thank you very much. Um, you can find us at www.panammuseum.org. Uh, we also have a podcast program that is very popular, and we are on social media, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and we have a YouTube channel in which you can see a lot of incredible training, a lot of videos uh, from uh, the days of Pan Am and the days when we were flying with Pan Am. Great, great, super. And that website, we once it. again, www.thepanammuseum.com. Dot org dot org. Okay, very good. I'll look it up right after the show. How about Jim Thank Holder? You. We're just about out of time. Can you finish it up, you and Luann? Uh, yes, uh, that concludes the show today, as you said. And we uh, hope you all got enjoyed this brief history and comments about an airline that still speaks of adventure, intrigue, romance, and a whole handful of firsts that we heard about today. Lou Ann, are there any last minute thoughts you want to add before we get Mr. Merle Hagel to sing us out of here? <laughs> well, Can I just I want to say my thanks. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Captain Neal. No, no, Captain um, Jim. Um, John. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to oh, say John. something. Uh, yeah, uh, I want to talk about, tell you about Captain Massland's flight, uh, the first uh, around the world by a commercial pilot. 
That that was a special mission uh, under that was sponsored by the United States government. He actually flew through a, a, a war zone between what was then Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, and Australia. And uh, that, that was quite a story. But Pan Am conducted so many of these special missions, you know, that were, were not publicized because the government had taken over, uh, the, you know, the, the management of the planes, although they were flown with Pan Am crews. But uh, I know that Bill Mump. Maslin, Captain Maslin, wanted that distinction of being the first commercial pilot to uh, to fly around the world. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to add this, too. While I was in high school, my senior year, a good friend of mine, was uh, his name was Johnny Dreyer, and his father was a captain with Pan American Airlines, and uh, Captain John Dreyer, and I guess Johnny was the second or uh, junior, uh, whatever, but uh, he was my flight instructor. He was one of the youngest flight instructors at that time in 1954 uh, around, and uh, Johnny uh, went and had uh, me fly in a 170 that he owned, and I really enjoyed flying, and I said, John, you, Johnny, you got to take me further, so we Rented a Piper Cub out at Browns Airport down south Miami, down at uh, home, almost home in Kendall, Florida. And uh, mm-hmm. Johnny soloed me in that Piper Cub at Browns Airport. And uh, his father was Captain John Dreyer, very, very senior captain. And uh, okay, I'm going to turn it back over to Luann. Luann, how about it? Well, I'm just going to say thanks to everyone. Thanks for listening to us. And don't forget, folks, our next episode features an airline, gone but not forgotten, National Airlines, the airline of the stars. Okay, Mr. Hager, sing us on out of here on Silver Wings. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Silver Wings. Shining in the sunlight, roaring engines, headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away, leaving me lonely. Silver wings, slowly fading out of sight. Don't take that airplane ride But you locked me out of your mind And left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sun Somewhere in flight They're taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight 
Thanks so much.